A few years ago, it's probably more than I think, I was doing a presentation for, uh, we were, I was involved in a high school, so I was doing a presentation at the school, and they introduced me as Reverend Clausen. And I went, what? <laughs> it's kind of like when you're called Mr. for the first time, when you kind of cross that line from, I don't know, something to adultness, adulthood. And I kind of just was shocked by that and how I don't, I've never had the so formal of an introduction of, of myself. And like, you kind of wonder about what reverence means and all those things. And they were seeking as a school to show me reverence. And it was an amazing thing, uh, shocking, all at the same time. Because I thought, I'm not that old. And I don't think at the time I was that old. But how do you know... How do you know if you are revering something or someone? How do you know that? You know, when I was looking up this thing, this, this, the, the, the definition, I was often wondering, how, what does it mean to revere something? You know, there's this definition that comes along here, and I, I looked it up because that's what you do with Google. And you, it says this, you know, feel a deep respect or admiration for something. That's what it means to revere someone or something. Actually, if you look back, the original meaning for to revere is uh, to fear, to fear something. And as I look at this text today, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Zephaniah a great book, a great reminder as we continue on in our series on, on the minor prophets, just taking time to reflect upon what God has to say and what he has to remind us about who he is, as I myself have to flip there because I didn't do it already. But if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Zephaniah, and we'll be in chapter 1, verses 7, to the end of the chapter, verse 8. So it says this, Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. And the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrates his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of Mortor, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. They, though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, 
a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of triumph, trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the, fiery of his, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make all of, of all the inhabitants of the earth. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we just come together to continue to worship you. As we open your word together, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say and what you have to tell us through your word. And Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. I want to continue to praise you and praise your name. And God, I can't do this on my own. So by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name and joy to your people and salvation to the lost, and amen. Reverence, that's what I get from this passage. A call to revere the Lord. The Savior, in this first part, and I just want to focus a little bit on that first sentence right there. There's the Savior's call to revere Him in verse 7, in the first part of verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God. As I read this, as you read this, there's going to be this temptation to come like an entitled, entitled child and call God not fair. And his response is simply this. Be quiet. That's it. Whatever you think that you're going to argue against, whatever argument is going to come up in your mind, whatever whine and and complaint about God not being fair, God comes and says, be quiet. He says, listen. There is no self-defense for the people of God as they look at what is happening here. Nothing. There's nothing that could be said. You're quiet because there's nothing to say. This is the language that causes us to stand there and think about who God is, to be reverent to him. This is the Savior's call to revere him. So it's easy to think, yes, God's going to get all the people to be quiet. But right here, right here in this passage, in all of these passages in Zephaniah, God is talking not to the world, but to his own people. And that is, to me, the thing that has been weighing deeply on my own heart. As I read this through, there's no cheering on my behalf. Yeah, yeah, God's going to win. He is going to win. But in this passage, he's talking to me. And he's talking to you. If you call yourself a Christian today, he's talking to you through these words. And God says to us, be silent. Listen. If you and I walk away from this thinking or talking about all the other people out there that need to hear what God has to say, we're missing the point. 
Because this is talking to you and to me. The Savior calls us to revere Him, to stand before Him, silence. It's an amazing thing. Even the glory of God, as, as weighty as this judgment passage is, it, it just makes me stand in awe of who God is. And it helps me to be self-reflective upon what I've done. We just came together as a family of God to celebrate and to remember what God has done for us on the cross. But this, ta- this table reminds us of who we were and what we have been saved from. We are a people saved by God's amazing grace. But in this case, the Lord calls his people to be silent before him. And as we look into these next few verses in 7b to, to, to verses 18 to the end of the chapter, we see that the Savior tells us why he is to be revered. And in verses 7 to 13, we see that his people are to revere him. The day of the Lord is near. When we think about it, what this day is, it's pointing, it is pointing to a future sense because we, we could go to the end of the Bible and go to the book of Revelation and see that at the end of times there is a day of the Lord again. But right here we're also focusing on the presence. There will be a time though that God will eradicate all evil from the world and all those who rebelled against him. The day of the Lord is an outgrowth of the reality that God is holy and just. So every time that we see in the Bible, when you read that the day of the Lord, we have to think that God is a holy God and that he is just. Because that's what he's pointing to. And as, he, as the day of the Lord begins to draw near, we see that he begins to prepare a sacrifice. And we have to see this. We have to look at this. If God is just, then he must judge sin. There's no way around that. God must appease his just wrath whether on the sinner or on a substitute. That's the cross. And this big word for this is called substitutionary atonement. And God comes and he points out to the people about how they have rejected his sacrifice, his substitution, and his wrath will be poured out. It's an amazing thing. And these people are the people in verse 9 that leap over the threshold. Some people think that this is a sort of a pagan, uh, a pagan religious practice, but other people would say that this is how fast people would go into other people's homes to, to steal away from them, as we see later on in verse 9, and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. These people have completely rejected who God is. These violent acts are in opposition to, to the healing and the truth that comes from truly worshiping God. The people were not revering God and it was leading to a life, it was leading to, to, to live a life that is counter to the worship of God. And the question that comes up to me is this, is, is would God be any more pleased with what we do on a Monday morning or on a Saturday evening in a land dotted with Christian churches? than what he does on a Sunday. It's a life that I am portraying, that you portraying here as we sit in these comfortable pews, because these are pretty comfortable, especially for those of us who grew up with wooden pews. Amen. 
Is the life you're portraying here on a Sunday the same life that you live throughout the week? Now, worshiping the Lord meant a great deal more than performing a ritual like coming to church on a Sunday. The prophets could even think that, they couldn't even think, they, didn't, they couldn't even comprehend that worship could, have, could not affect the relationships with people and practices of the everyday life. A few years ago, I was hit hard with this statement because I was having an argument with my beautiful wife. She doesn't know I'm telling this story. So, um, and, and, I, and I remember her saying these things. She said, and she was right. She said, I don't feel that our lives on Sunday equal what we live during the week. And I listened to those words and I went, wow. God cares far more than that for me, for that than my wife does. And as we go on in verse 10, on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate. And we have to think of the geography of the area. This area was kind of a land bridge, and anyone was forced to come from the north and come down, and the fish gate was in the north, and and the second quarter was there in the north. So all the trade routes would come to Jerusalem from the north, and that is where it was coming. But that was also where all the armies would come too, because it was the land bridge. So the geography causes trouble to happen. All the commerce would come from that area, but God's judgment of his people would happen right at the heart of what they put their trust in. He would take away all of that. The fish gates would be broken down. The financial sector would crumble. And as it says in verse 11, whale inhabitants of Mordor, we don't really know where that is, but we're assuming that it is this financial sector. This is where all the uh, wealthy uh, uh, trades people, the middle class would be, and they would do their trading. And God begins to erode all the things that they've been putting their trust in, their true gods. You know, the irony of the American money is that it says in God they trust. There's a huge irony in that statement, right? Because it, uh, literally, do, they do literally trust in that piece of paper, right? Canada has our own problems, but that one's just an easy picture. But do you hear the wailing that is happening? Do you hear the gnashing of teeth that is happening as their security is beginning to be wiped away? Can you imagine it? As you close your eyes, you picture all those war-torn countries like in, in Syria and the Middle East with buildings being collapsed and, and people wailing at the death of their loved ones. Can you picture that? Because that's what's happening here. Everything that they put their trust in is beginning to fall apart. And in verse 12, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. You know what happens when the God who created all things says that he's searching an area with lamps? That means that there's no hiding from the scrutiny of what's about to happen. There's no way that you can hide. No sin won't be found out. There's no hiding at all. And as he searches this city, he says that he will punish those who are complacent. 
who are complacent. These are the people that are saying that there is a God, but ignoring his lordship in their lives. These are the people who, who are self-secure and undisturbed. They're the people that are comfortable. Complacence, or in some translations they might see, are thickening on the dirge. It's a, it's a wine-making process. When the fer- I had to look this up. So when fermented wine was poured from one jug to another to separate the wine from the sediment, if it sat too long, it would become thick and the wine would become ruined. You see the picture of laziness almost. They're just comfortable. They're just sitting there. And this picture is talking about people who have lived in uninterrupted prosperity and have become complacent. In other words, this is what is called practical atheism. It's the idea of acknowledging that God, that there is a God, but your life shows that there's no aspect of a Lord over your life. You are the Lord of your life. And every part of your life just cries out that that is true. People have defied themselves. They're thinking that their might and they're thinking about their own mights and, that, that, and they're thinking about their own hands and how their own hands and how their own might has gotten them wealthy. They have become so used to their lives that they cannot see what they have become. I think about the church sometimes. I think about myself. Times are getting harder, aren't they? For the church. Persecution is becoming a reality. It is coming. It's not there yet. Don't say whatever you're dealing with right now is persecution. It's not. Go to Sudan or China or something, okay? This is not persecution, but it's coming. It's coming. And I got to think to myself sometimes, have we become too comfortable? Have we slipped into this practical atheism? Do I live in such a way that God is not Lord of my life? Do I proclaim that Jesus is my Savior, but forget the part about him being Lord as well? And this is what is happening right here. God comes and he will go with a searchlight and he will look in all the crannies and the cracks of the city and he will judge those who are complacent those who deny the lordship of god even though with their mouth they proclaim that jesus christ even though they come to church and sing all these wonderful songs this is a theme here god's people didn't revere him they didn't think god won't keep his promises they they didn't even think god would keep his blessings or his curses but how many times do i come to god and think and expect that he's going to bless me for my obedience but completely ignore the fact that god has also given a promise of curse if i disobey god will do what he says that he will do So instead of leading to a deeper humility and gratitude for mercy, God's delayed punishment had resulted in the people's failure to fear God's wrath. It's like what the psalmist says in Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. 
How can we think God won't do what he says that he will do? Only when we deny the lordship of God in our life, when we become complacent. Or in Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And as we continue on through this in verse 13, we see that everything will be destroyed. Everything that they put their security in will be destroyed. God's judgment starts with where the people's hearts are, and God comes and he destroys it. And it's not just his people that he calls to revere him, but the whole world. As we see on in verses 14 and 18, we see that the great day, this vast day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast, is not lurking, it is imminent, it is coming. This is a sure thing. This is what's going to happen. And in verses 15 to 16, we see a day of wrath. Is That day was an amazing clarity. There are details of the horror of God's judgment that poured out on here. I've read this over and over again, and I went, this is not a good day. God himself pouring out distress on mankind. There's this nature of punishment, that even the fortified cities, even the most secure strongholds are unable to withstand God's destructive power. And I think I've talked about this story before. I was talking with a neighbor, and they gave, they were talking, I don't know how it came up. Oh, we were talking about end times for some reason. And we're sitting there, we're talking, and she's starting to describe hell as a place where she'll get to have a party with her friends. Yeah, I kind of went, well, God, you're opening this door. Give me grace, give me patience, give me boldness. I'm going for it. I said, that's not what the Bible describes hell as. What we see here. this day of wrath that is coming, that is an accurate description of hell. Jesus calls it a gnashing of teeth. And I pleaded with her. The only way that you can escape that is through Jesus Christ. The only way. The day of wrath, this is something that we need to take seriously. And the outcome of this in verse 17 is that they will walk like blindness. This is actually a covenantal curse this is what God told the people. This is what will happen to you if you disobey. This is what happens. In Deuteronomy 28, we see this. They will walk, in, they will walk like the blinds. It points to the spiritual inability to see God's beauty and one's own neediness. They just continue to go on with their life thinking everything's good. You can kind of picture them skipping through skipping through the, 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 the fields and thinking life is all good. I saw a video a couple of days ago where it was called Hubby Glasses. So this lady picks up a, a box. She gets this box from Amazon. She opens it up, and there's this Hubby Glasses. And you, you put on the glasses, and perspective suddenly changes. You know? So she says to her husband, the next scene is, I asked you to empty the garbage. The garbage is overflowing. And the husband said, oh, there's still room in there. And she's like, what are you talking about? She puts on her hubby glasses, and the garbage is empty. Right? 
completely blind. But this is what's happening here. They will walk like the blind. They will not see their neediness. They will not see how desperately they need God. They will not see his beauty anymore. God gives them up. And then in verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. You know, we don't know. Just think about it. No form of earthly or spiritual power can rescue the rebel from God's wrath. Nothing. Such salvation comes only by what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. He says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord. It is only through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You can just picture them, right? The, the, the city, Jerusalem, is, is attacked. It's, the walls are falling and all of these, these people are coming out of their houses with all of their gold, with all their silver, or maybe they're praying to their gods that they've accepted and rejected God over and they're just praying and they're bringing out their gold and everyone's like, that's not going to save you. The soldiers are pouring into the city and they're just taking the gold and killing the people. Nothing will save them. But God comes to us and says in 1 Peter again, it is only the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, that can save you. And God comes with with the fire of his jealousy. Do you struggle with that word? I do. Picturing God as jealous. Right? Because I get jealous all the time. You know, I have friends who get a new car or a new toy or your neighbors get something nice and you're like, whoo-hoo. Oh, they, they must be way in debt. <laughs> you know, that's called jealousy, guys. Like, how could they possibly afford that? I struggle with picturing God as jealous, but I think it's, it's I don't think, I know it's because I don't have an understanding of what biblical jealousy is. Like a just judge committed to what is right, God's consuming passion for the honor of his name will soon burst forth in an unquenchable fire of wrath against the ungodly of the earth. See, jealousy in the Bible is talking about talk about taking something that God deserves and then giving it to someone or something else. We often think of jealousy as we want something that someone has, but the Bible uses a word very differently. Think about it this way. Let's say you see, think about for those who are married and your spouses. Husbands, think about it this way. If a husband sees another man's flirting with his wife, he has the right to be jealous. Right? For only he has the right to flirt with his wife. No other man has the right to flirt with my wife. I get to do that. 
this type of jealousy is not sinful, right? It's really appropriate. I, I hope, men, if you see another man flirting with your wife that you become jealous. If not, we're going to have to do a whole sermon on that. Okay? But think about it. Being jealous for something that God declares to belong to you is good and appropriate. Jealousy is a sin when it is a desire for something that does not belong to you. Worship, praise, honor, and adoration belong to God alone. For only He is truly worthy of it. God is right to be jealous when we worship or praise or honor or adore anything else above him. When we value creation over the creator, that is exactly what is happening and God's jealousy burns for that. This is the jealousy that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. See, that's the reality that we must point people to, the reality of what happens when we don't revere God as our Savior. So what? Who cares? I got three things. As we look this over, let these things move you to revere God. How awful would it be to have the source of all power the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who is the upholder of all life working against you. Having learned that the living God is approaching in anger, the only thing that we can do is approach this situation with reverently quiet speech, with quiet hearts and an activity before the sovereign one, just like Zephaniah calls us to do in verse 7. Let these things move you to revere God. You know, as I look this over, I think, like, oftentimes these things don't, when we think about let these things move to revere God, move us to revere God, two outcomes happen, right? Either our heart becomes hard or our heart becomes soft. There's only two options, We come along and say, God, you're not fair. How dare you judge? Or I fall on my knees before the holy God. The second thing is this. Be amazed of God's gift of the substitute sacrifice. See, in the book of Leviticus, before this, that was written before this, the sacrifice that was laid out was about God punishing a substitute rather than the sinner. So when people would kill the lamb or whatever it was, God's wrath would be poured out on that. It was symbolic. It was a substitution for my sin. So when the people of God came along and rejected those substitutes, God's wrath wasn't being poured out on that lamb anymore. It was being poured out on them. This is why Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Before Jesus died on the cross, blood filled the streets. It was full. It was always flowing, reminding us of how we needed to substitute, that we can pay the price, that God needed to pay the price for us. And when Jesus died on the cross, the blood stopped flowing because it was enough. It's done. Jesus was our substitute. 
And that's what we see when we look at the cross. When the Bible says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus, God incarnate, steps down from his throne to become the sacrifice for us. The cross, God's war against evil, manifests itself in his cursing Christ on behalf of us. We see this in Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Or in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for, at, for it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. The gospel is so evident here. The gospel is wrapped up in these words that Christ died for our sins and rose again. Christ, the gospel, is, the, is about the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, this long-promised Messiah who was born of the Virgin Mary, who died on the cross for our sins while living a sinless life. And you can read all about it in the Gospel of Mark. He died for us. Both fully human and fully man was put to death on a Roman cross. He really did die. His blood stopped pumping. He died. In a Jewish tomb, he was buried. But this death was not accident because for Christ died for us. He died in place of us. Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. He was dying in the place of, of, of us so that anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior shall be saved. He died because of our sins. Not his, ours. He took our sins on himself and suffered the punishment of God in our place. And he was raised. God's giant stamp of approval was that Christ rose from the dead. He is not there. So the second thing that we need to be is be amazed of God's gift of a substitute sacrifice. The more I become aware of God's holiness as I read this, the more I become aware of what God has saved me from the more joy comes out in my life. Third thing is this. We need to call others to take sin seriously and to revere God while there's still hope. See, for those of us who are Christians, the future return and the final day of the Lord will be an awesome day. It would be a great day. But the Bible is very clear that while there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and all who have been justified by his blood will be saved, there's very much a wrath that remains for anyone who fails to take Jesus Christ as their substitutes. So we need to think about this. This is the big idea. 
God calls us to revere him as the living God by honoring, obeying, and exalting, worshiping, and trusting him for our salvation. Let us continue to praise and worship our awesome God today. Father God, we just thank you for who you are and what you have done. And as we continue to worship you, Lord, I pray that you would indeed be glorified. May we see what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. May we see clearly what there is when we don't submit ourselves to the lordship of, of you in all of every area of our life. God, may you be glorified as we continue to worship you. And amen.